Well, thank you, Larry, for that great introduction. This is good to be back here with you and study some more history. The Neuronic persecution was the eve of destruction for the Jews, no doubt about it. They wanted to wipe out the church, but instead they got wiped out by the Romans. It was a very dark time for the church, and even though it was short-lived, only two years, 64 to 66 A.D., it was extremely intense and killed the majority of the remaining Christians. In this lesson, we will look at the last two New Testament books to be written, Jude and Second Peter, which I believe were written just about the time of the Neuronic persecution, as it was just beginning or just after it had begun in the late summer or early fall of 64 A.D., now, I want to mention a couple of things here before we get started. We have lesson outlines for these podcasts saved in a PDF format. So if you're not a regular listener, you may not be aware that, that we have those PDFs available. Many listeners have found it very helpful to have that PDF in front of them as they listen. So if you'd like to get that PDF, simply email me and request it. If you're already a regular listener to this program and would like to automatically uh, receive the PDF as soon as it's ready to go without having to request it each time, uh, simply email me and ask to be put on the PDF list. That way you'll get it automatically without having to request it. Uh, my email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. And that preterist1 is the number one. It's not spelled out. preterist one at preterist.org. Let's ask God for his guidance in our study here. Our Heavenly Father, we again ask for your guiding hand upon the leaders of this nation who have forsaken your ways. We pray that our fellow Americans will join with us in humbling ourselves and praying and seeking your face and turning from our wicked ways. Just like the Jewish nation in AD 70 deserved your wrath to be poured upon them, we here in America have not kept your ways and have invited a similar disaster upon our, ourselves. May this nation turn back to its biblical roots and restore the godly foundation that this country originally was built on. Use these historical studies to teach us the mistakes of the past so that we can avoid them in the future. We praise your holy name for your first century saints who suffered unspeakable tortures and unthinkable horrors in the neuronic persecution in order to be salt and light in the midst of a very perverse and crooked generation. They deserve the great resurrection and rapture reward that you gave to them at your parousia of your son Jesus Christ. May all who listen to these podcasts be inspired to live holy lives by looking at their amazing examples of faithfulness in the midst of of terrifying persecution and overwhelming hardship. It is in the name of our precious Savior and your glorious Son that we pray. Amen. I also want to mention here at the beginning, uh, if you have benefited from these studies and, and it's been helpful to you in your understanding of God's Word, uh, we would encourage you to become partners with us in this teaching and publishing ministry in order to share in all the good fruit that comes from it. I get emails every week from listeners all over the country and around the world expressing their appreciation for these historical studies. 
Those who contribute to International Preterist Association will receive some of our latest and greatest resources as our gift to you. Simply go to our website and click on the left sidebar button entitled Make a Donation to IPA, where you can make a one-time donation or contribute monthly. Our website address is www.preterist.org. You can also make donations on our PayPal if you have a PayPal account. Our PayPal address that you can send a donation to is, again, that same one that I gave you before, preterist1 at preterist.org. In our study last time, we looked at the first epistle of Peter, showing when it was written and the circumstances under which it was composed and sent out by courier to the churches in Turkey. We suggested that there are two possible dates for the epistle, either in the summer of 63, just before Paul was arrested the second time in Turkey, or in very early 64, several months before the Neuronic persecution broke out. So that was when First Peter was written. Uh, this time we're going to look at the last two books of our New Testament to be written, which I believe are the epistles of Jude and Second Peter. And this will complete our survey of all the New Testament books when they were written, all 27 of them we've dealt with. And we noticed that 18 of those 27 were written in this last six years or so before the outbreak of the revolt in 66 A.D. So very prolific time of letter writing here uh, that we're looking at. And the last two of those New Testament epistles, I believe, to be written were Jude and Second Peter. Since this pre-70 date for all the New Testament books has enormous implications for the interpretation and application of all these New Testament books, and especially for these two that we're looking at, Jude and Second Peter, uh, it'll be worth spending some extra time on that idea in the future. And I, in the next three or four podcasts, I want to deal with this canonization process a little bit. Uh, we'll be talking about the idea of apostolic canonization. I think that'll be a very interesting study for you, and I want to spend some significant time on that because it's so important to the understanding of our New Testament. Of course, any time we talk about the completion of the New Testament canon of Scripture, we have to deal with all the issues of inspiration, authorship, relevance, and authority. Those of you who have listened to me in the past know that I am a diehard conservative on canonical matters. Not only do I date all the New Testament books before 70 A.D., but I also believe in their apostolic authorship or connection with an apostle and their absolute relevance and authority for us today, even after 70 A.D. I know there's a lot of preterists now who are beginning to question the relevance and applicability of the New Testament teachings to us today after 70 A.D. But I think we'll see as we go through this study on the canonicity that all these New Testament books are inspired and authoritative for us today. They are relevant for us today. A couple years ago, in my podcast at ad70.net, we presented a series of four lessons on apostolic canonization. I'm going to be sharing that information again with you here on this podcast in the coming weeks. You'll get the benefit of all those studies that we did previously. The concept of an apostolic canon may be new for most of us. It is essentially the idea that all the New Testament writings were written, collected, and certified 
as authoritative by the apostles before they passed from the earthly scene. The preterist version of that theory goes even further to assert that this process of apostolic canonization was completed before 70 A.D. because some of the futurists say that it was completed before all the apostles died, but not all the apostles died before 70 A.D. They think that John may have lived beyond 70 A.D., and so the, the canon of New Testament was not finished until John died somewhere in the latter part of the first century, according to the futurist. But since we believe that John died before 70 in the Neronic persecution, then all the New Testament books were easily written before 70 A.D., and therefore uh, they could easily have been collected together and certified by the apostles as a complete canon of Scripture. And that's the idea that we're going to be uh, sharing with you in the coming weeks. So keep that idea in the back of your mind as we look at these last two books of our New Testament to be written, Jude and Second Peter. I might also note here that Don Preston and I have exchanged emails on these two books. I tend to place Second Peter as the last book of our New Testament to be written, while Preston tends to see Jude as the last book because of its statement there in Jude verse 3. Jude says here to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude is referring to a completed canon which is completed as of his book. And that's certainly a good argument. I don't have any problem with that. Don Preston and I have discussed this, and he agrees that both Second Peter and Jude were written about the same time. So it really doesn't make an awful lot of difference whether we put one or the other first, because if they were both written at the same time, which I believe we can determine easily from internal contents, then it, it really doesn't matter. They were both written as the last books of our New Testament. I want to first discuss the authorship issues here of Jude and Second Peter, and then look at some of the other contents inside them that help us date the books and determine that they were, in fact, written by Jude and Peter. And, of course, everybody's got a theory about who wrote the epistles of Jude and Second Peter. They do not all follow the traditional view that early Christian writers have handed down to us. All of us are reading the same facts but in some cases coming to different conclusions. Since we preterists are not the only ones who have taken a different approach to the question of authorship and date on these two epistles, there can be no sustainable objection to our theories, since we are looking at the internal evidence to make our judgments in that regard. As long as we harmonize our theories with the biblical and historical facts, then we have as much right to our opinion of the date and authorship as the next scholar does. And so that's the way we're going to be approaching it, looking at the internal evidence as well as the historical facts and seeing how they harmonize and work together. I have looked at the evidence and argumentation of several who reject the traditional authorship and date for these books and have found it very weak and unconvincing. Therefore, I will be staying with the more traditional views, the more conservative views on authorship and date, which is the idea that the epistle of Jude and Second Peter were written before 70 A.D. by the people who bear the name on the book, by Jude and Peter. In regard to the epistle of Jude, I believe it was written by the brother 
of Jesus. About the same time that Peter wrote his second epistle in about AD 64. I believe Peter's second epistle, as well as the epistle of Jude, were written near the beginning of the Neuronic persecution. I'm aware of the fact that some scholars dispute the authorship and date and canonicity of both of these epistles, especially since Jude quotes a verse from the book of Enoch as being a true prophecy, which many people would have problems with, as well as uh, Jude alludes to another apocryphal book, The Assumption of Moses. These two quotes or allusions to apocryphal books has caused many scholars to back away from Jude especially and question his authenticity, his inspiration, and his canonicity. I do not share their skepticism, however. I believe there's good reasons why Jude quotes and alludes to the book of Enoch and the assumption of Moses, and the parts of it that he alludes to, I believe, are true historical accounts and even true prophecies in the the case of the book of Enoch. And so there's no reason for us to question Jude in that regard. And the commentaries, however, uh, explain all this very well. If you get some good conservative commentaries, one of them that I would recommend is the Pillar Commentary series. I don't think it's complete yet, but they do have the uh, volume out dealing with Jude and Second Peter. And we'll mention that later on down the road here. It's uh, written by Gene L. Green and is published by Baker Books. Very, very good, excellent conservative commentary on Jude and Second Peter. Okay, there's a ton of excellent online resources for these two biblical books. And in the PDF for this lesson, we'll list those out for you so that you don't have to write them down now while you're listening. Uh, They're right there in the PDF. If we have time, I'm going to try to read some excerpts uh, from some of these excellent articles that I found online about Jude and 2 Peter. One of them especially, uh, Don Preston's article, where he's... uh, Defending the early date of Revelation against Stanley Payer's skepticism, uh, he does a good job, and he brings Jude and Second Peter into his article there in order to provide evidence for the early date of Revelation, defending it against Stanley Payer, who's trying to push the book of Revelation off into the late first century, uh, after 70 A.D., And I want to read some statements from that article because I think it really helps us nail down uh, the early date of Jude and Second Peter, because the same argument that Stanley Payer uses against Revelation's early date is also used against Second Peter and Jude, because all three of those books, Revelation, Jude, and Second Peter, refer to the Nicolaitans, which Stanley Payer alleges were not around before 70 A.D., I think Don Preston makes a really good case here to show that, in fact, they were around and uses the book of Acts and Romans, 1 Corinthians, and other books of our New Testament to prove that. And we'll try to read some of that here shortly to give you a little taste of that excellent article. I've got the uh, website address for Don's article here in the PDF for you. I also have the uh, website link for Daniel Wallace. Uh, He's one of the professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote a a real good defense of the Petrine authorship and pre-70 date of 2 Peter, and it's listed at the Bible.org website. I've got the link for it here in the PDF. Also, I've got a link for 
an article showing the similarities between Jude and Second Peter. As you know, uh, if you've ever read those two letters, one right after the other, you'll notice that there's a lot of similarities between Jude and the second chapter of Second Peter, especially. And there's a good article showing 16 different similar phrases and words and so on that are used uh, in both books. Very good article. Now, the link for it here is in the PDF, so you don't need to write it down. Okay, let's talk about uh, the internal evidence. And I want to look at some of the expectation statements in the books of, of Jude and Second Peter. And before we do that, I, I want to quote a little bit from Don Preston's excellent article. I, I think you'll enjoy this. I liked how he refuted Stanley Payer. Stanley Payer is not one of my favorite guys, since he rejects the deity of Christ. It doesn't recommend any of his views for serious consideration. But here's what Don Preston says about the early date of Revelation and how it relates to Jude and Second Peter as well. The article title is The Nicolaitans and the Date of Revelation, and it was written by Don Preston back in May of 2006. That's the date it was posted on the website, at least. And he starts off by saying, The condition of the seven churches of Asia is often posited as evidence for the late date, i.e., 95 to 98 A.D. Stanley Payer, for instance, in an unpublished paper, says this, quote, The existence of heretical sects, such as the Nicolaitans, the Balaamites, and Jezebel's group, found in Revelation 2, verse 6, 2, verse 14, 15, and 20, is not confirmed by anyone in A.D. 64, end of quote. He then takes note of Ignatius, early 2nd century, and Irenaeus, later in the 2nd century, both of whom referred to the Nicolaitans. Payer then says, It takes time for heresies to arise from within. For in the first place, a church must have developed a more or less orthodox faith as a standard to compare a departure from it. End of quote. A very simple argument there. Stanley Payer simply saying that since the book of Revelation mentions the Nicolaitans, and the Nicolaitans are not found anywhere in the pages of our New Testament outside of the book of Revelation, it suggests that the book of Revelation then was not written until later when the Nicolaitans were definitely documented as being around. And, of course, he goes to uh, two second-century writers, Ignatius and Irenaeus, who mention the Nicolaitans as being around uh, in their day. And so, since New Testament doesn't mention the Nicolaitans by name, uh, Stanley Payer believes that that shows that the book of Revelation could not have been written until the late 90s, close to the when the time that uh, Ignatius mentions the Nicolaitans being around. Okay, so Don Preston responds to that argument by the following. The purpose of this article is to demonstrate that the Nicolaitans, instead of being evidence for a late date, serve as extremely strong evidence for the early date of the apocalypse. The doctrinal identity of the Nicolaitans help us place them within a definite framework. The Nicolaitans taught that it was all right to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Revelation 2, verse 14 and 15. Why was it wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Why was it wrong to commit fornication? Caution is needed before answering too hastily. 
The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was in direct conflict with the Jerusalem Conference. Acts chapter 15, verse 29 explicitly lists those two things as not to be done by the Gentiles, the purpose of which was to enhance Jew and Gentile oneness in Christ. In other words, if the Jews were ever going to accept the Gentiles, these requirements had to be met that are laid down in Acts chapter 15, verse 29, two of which were don't eat meat sacrificed to idols and don't commit fornication. Those two things were very offensive to Jewish people in general and Jewish Christians specifically. And so the Gentiles had to make sure they maintained strict adherence to those guidelines. Okay, and and that was for the purpose of Jew and Gentile oneness in Christ, so that the the church would be united together and and the Gentiles would accept the uh, Jews and the Jewish Christians would accept the Gentiles as fellow believers in Christ. It is clear from Paul that the eating of meat sacrificed to idols was in and of itself not wrong. Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But clearly it was offensive to the Jewish segment of the church. Thus, for the sake of unity in the body, the Gentiles were told to abstain in those circumstances in which the eating would bring offense to the brethren. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 and following. The question of fornication should also be seen in the light of its association with the idolatrous background of the Gentiles that was so offensive to the Jewish Christians. The doctrine of eating meats, sacrifice to idols, and fornication was then a matter of grave importance and an issue that arose very early in the life of the first century church. It was an issue of body unity, of Jew and Gentile fellowship. If the Gentiles could be convinced that they had the liberty to continue because of the abounding grace of Christ to eat meats and participate in the sensual practices of idolatry, then the unity of the body of Christ would be threatened if not totally broken asunder. The significance of this issue is revealed when one examines Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and 10 in great detail and see how much time and energy Paul devoted to it. This was not just an issue of setting forth a doctrine of expediency. It impinged upon the unity of the faith itself. Ephesians 4, verse 13, and the fullness of the Gentiles that that would be coming in, uh, which is spoken of in in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, and the consummation of the mystery of God in Christ, which is mentioned also in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 3 and following. 2 Peter chapter 2 sheds light on the issue before us. If 2 Peter 2 was addressed to the same audience as 1 Peter, then it was addressed to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Thus, 2 Peter was written to the very churches of Turkey and Asia that the book of Revelation was addressed to. Second Peter is, we believe, to be dated 64 to 66 A.D. What issues did Peter address? Peter says that the false teachers he is addressing walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 10. They have eyes full of adultery, and they were constantly beguiling unstable souls. Further, Peter says what they were doing was following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, verse 15. 
This is precisely the charge against the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2, verse 14, which was addressed to the same group of people and same group of churches that Second Peter is addressed to. Compare also the epistle of Jude, verses 7 through 12. What we find then is that the very things that were troubling the seven churches of Asia were the issues at stake in books generally dated earlier than the Apocalypse such as Second Peter and Jude. Revelation deals with those from within the body who were teaching false doctrine. Second Peter and Jude do the very same thing, as we can see in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Revelation deals with those teaching sexual immorality, as does Second Peter and Jude. Revelation calls the false teachers Nicolaitans, but they are also called teachers of the way of Balaam, just as Second Peter and Jude do also. Revelation is addressed to the churches in Asia. Second Peter is also. With these points of parallelism, how can one discount the association? And if the early date of Second Peter is admitted, then the early date for the apocalypse can hardly be denied. Further, when one considers how early the issue of eating meats and fornication became an issue, basically in 51 A.D., as we see in Acts chapter 15 and Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, it can hardly be argued that these doctrines were not major issues as early as the 60s. On the contrary, it is seen in the light of Acts, Romans, and Corinthians that the issues of Revelation 2 and 3 were issues of long-standing trouble in the early church, not something recent that only came about in the last decade of the first century. Revelation does not stand isolated, therefore, from the religious malu of the rest of the New Testament. Instead, we have the testimony of Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Second Peter, and Jude that the very issues addressed by Jesus in Revelation were part of a widespread endemic problem within the early church, going back as far as 50 A.D., 10 to 15 years before uh, the book of Revelation was written and 10 to 15 years before Second Peter and Jude were written as well. Well, I think that'll help us. I'm not going to quote the rest of this. I, I think that's enough to show that those who date the book of Revelation and Second Peter and Jude before 70 A.D. stand on very strong New Testament footing. There's good evidence to show that these very Nicolaitans that were around in the first century were there before 70 A.D., already causing trouble to the church. And that's why Acts chapter 15 council had to to deal with those two issues because they knew that it was going to be a problem for Jewish-Gentile unity. I think Don Preston makes a very, very good case on that. I recommend uh, you read the whole article. The link for that is listed here in the PDF. Now let's look at the internal uh, contents of Jude and Second Peter. I will look at some of the uh, expectations that Jude and Peter gave to those first century saints. And I want to make the note here that those expectations are a kind of eminency indicator because if you think about it, if he's telling those Christians in the first century what they can expect to see and hear and experience at the parousia, then he's telling them by implication 
that they're going to be the ones that will get to see it happen, that it's going to be in their lifetime, in their experience. And so these uh, expectation statements are a form of time statements. They're a time of eminency indicators, since they're clearly expecting these things to occur soon in their lifetime. The eschatological events are indeed uh, shortly to take place, that it was not a long time off because Peter and Jude are giving the expectation of seeing those things in their lifetime. So let's look at some of these expectations that Jude and Peter give to those first century saints. Uh, you, you may want to get your Bible open on this. Uh, look at Jude. It's uh, one little page or one chapter uh, book that's right before the book of Revelation. Let's look at a few verses here in the book of Jude. In regard to the authorship, notice in verse 1, he says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, in the Greek there, it actually uses adelphos, uh, which is the Greek word for brother. And so, and there's no question about that. If you look in all the majority text readings, it's there. There's no question about the authenticity of the word brother being in the text. And so it's brother of James. It's not son of James. The reason I point that out is because there are some who take this book of Jude to be written by one of the twelve apostles whose name was Jude. Judas Iscariot was one of them. There was another Judas uh, who was the son of James. But none of those who had the name Judas were the brother of James. They were all either the son of James or son of Alphaeus or son of Iscariot. And yet here in the book of Jude, verse 1, it says that this Jude who's writing this book is the brother of James. He's not the son of James. He's the brother of James. And there is a difference. And then people will say, well, why didn't he say that he was a brother of Jesus? Well, uh, because he was not the full brother. He was only a half-brother of Jesus just like James was a half-brother. He's writing in a typical way that uh, they would write, expressing humility. They're not going to claim any authority just on the basis that uh, they're related to Jesus in a half-brother way. Notice he says he's a brother of James. He's a full brother of James. He's only a half-brother of Jesus. And he puts himself in the position of being a bondservant of Jesus rather than claiming uh, a brotherly status there. Notice here in verse 1 also of Jude, he says, to those who are the call, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, that's the same word, I believe, that's used for fathers who kept their virgins unmarried in their household and took care of them, especially in evil days when there was no good people around, uh, as it was in the days of the first century. Apostle Paul advises fathers to keep their virgins and keep them unmarried and not allow them to get married in a, in a time in that present distress uh, when it was unsafe and to do so because they might marry someone who would lead them away from the faith or cause undue hardship upon them by having them persecuted or tortured. It might uh, tend to take their other family members out of the faith. So there was good reason why Paul gave that advice in view of the present distress that they were under and the persecution. But it's the same word here that's used for being kept for Jesus Christ, he says. The, you're the called out ones, beloved in God the Father, and kept 
for Jesus Christ. That's a clear time statement and expectation statement because these saints that are being addressed here by Jude are being told that they are being held for or kept for or reserved for Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world would that mean? It implies that they are being kept in the faith and being protected and cared for by Jesus until he returns. Uh, It implies that they're going to experience that return in their lifetime because they're being kept for him so that they would live and remain until his return. At least some of them would, for sure. And so that's what's implied here in this statement, kept for Jesus Christ. And notice uh, in verse 3, we've talked about the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Uh, There's some serious implications there. Notice it says with a definite article, the faith, not a faith, not just any old faith, but the faith, the one particular decisive faith that had been once for all time handed down to the saints. And so there was a specific identifiable pattern of truth that had been handed down by Christ to the apostles, which they taught and wrote down for us, so that we now have the complete teachings of Christ. Everything that that the Holy Spirit revealed to the apostles, they wrote down for us, so that it's available to every generation after the first century. And that faith that they revealed to us and wrote down for us is now completed here. And Jude is making reference to that fact that it's now been once for all handed down to the saints, both in audible form to those first century Christians and in written form to us in our New Testament. Then in verses 4 through 16, he mentions these uh, Nicolaitans. Uh, I don't think he mentions them by name. He doesn't call them Nicolaitans, but he does refer to them as rushing headlong into the error of Balaam, which the book of Revelation also refers to, uh, this same group of people who were Nicolaitans. They were uh, in the error of Balaam. And so he's talking about them, and Second Peter, of course, will deal with the same group of people and describe them the same way that Jude does here. And then in verse 13, He says that these folks, these Nicolaitans, they're like the folks who perished in the rebellion of Korah in the wilderness. He said they're hidden reefs in your love feast, and they're wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now, question, what is this black darkness that's reserved for them forever? It sounds like that black darkness is not going to just cease to exist. It's there forever. And it sounds like these folks are going to be put into that black darkness where they will exist in that black darkness forever. doesn't seem like any annihilationism is being taught here. This seems very clearly to point to eternal conscious punishment of some folks, these Nicolaitans, who would be put into the black darkness forever. That black darkness was being reserved for them. So I would urge uh, you to give that verse some very serious consideration. I do not believe it's teaching annihilationism, that people will cease to exist, like the the wicked, that, that the wicked would cease to exist after they die. Now, in chapter 1 here of Jude, in verse 18 now, it says, In the last time there would be mockers, and he identifies these Nicolaitans, or Balaamites, as those very mockers that are supposed to appear 
in the last time. He says these are the very folks that we're talking about. They, these were predicted in the Old Testament scriptures, that there would be mockers in the last time. And they're the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. And he says, uh, you Christians, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, so that you'll avoid the error of these mockers who were following after their own ungodly lust. Now notice, uh, he says that in the last time there would be mockers, and these Nicolaitans were the very ones that were predicted to occur in those last times. So what's the implication? Jude is saying, by implication, that they were in the last time, because these mockers who were predicted to come in the last time were there right then, and he's talking about them in the context. And so they must, therefore, be in the last time. That's a clear time statement. I don't know how in the world anybody can get around that. Okay, let's look at verse 21 now of Jude. Notice it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. They were waiting anxiously for something according to some of our fellow preterists, that they would not even recognize when it occurred. They wouldn't even know it when it happened. And yet Jude is saying here, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now, what does Jude say they would get? Mercy and eternal life. I thought they were already Christians and had mercy and grace and eternal life. What is this additional mercy and eternal life that they would get at the parousia? Did they get it? Did they know that they got it? Did they experience that mercy and eternal life in any cognitive way when they received it? Or were they still waiting anxiously for it after AD 70, not even realizing that it had already arrived? It seems more likely that they did receive that merciful rescue out of the tribulation and their heavenly home with eternal life when Christ returned. How did they do that? Well, they were raptured, of course. They were caught up to be with that. That's how they received it. That's how they saw it. That's how they experienced it. That's why they were waiting anxiously for that mercy to eternal life. God would mercifully rescue them out of the tribulation and snatch them away to be with him forever afterwards. He took his bride home with him, and they were waiting anxiously for that. It just doesn't make any sense to believe that that came and went without them even being aware of it or experiencing it or getting the benefits of it. Do you catch the power of that? Notice in verse 24, Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Notice this expectation that Jude is giving to these saints in the first century. He says that he will keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Jude prays that God would keep them from falling away into the error of the Nicolaitans so that they would remain faithful at the time of the parousia, so that they would be allowed to stand blameless, unashamed, and with great joy in the presence of his glory 
at the parousia. He is clearly talking about those who would remain alive at the parousia, praying that they would remain faithful to the very end so that they would stand unashamed and joyful in his glorious presence at the parousia. They were not expecting to miss the parousia. They were promised here that they would stand blameless in his glorious presence. They would see his glory and know that he came and would receive the mercy and eternal life that he had just mentioned in a couple of verses before that. They would experience great joy when they saw these things. Now, the question is, did they experience that joy? Did they see him return? Did they stand in his presence, blameless, with great joy, and experience that mercy and eternal life that he promised them here? Did they stand in his presence? Did they know that they stood in his presence? Did they experience those things? You catch the power of that? Let's look at Second Peter. I think he has a lot of very similar ideas. But these kind of expectations imply something. They imply that those first century saints were going to see and hear and experience some things at the parousia. They're not going to walk away from that event not even knowing it happened. And they're certainly going to talk about it afterwards if they experience those things, if they're still around. And the fact that they don't talk about it later tells us that they weren't still around. They must have been raptured out of there. Look at Second Peter now. Notice down in in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter mentions the black darkness again that was being reserved for those same Nicolaitans that Jude had mentioned earlier. And again, we want to emphasize the point that neither Peter nor Jude are teaching annihilationism. Uh, they're teaching eternal conscious punishment for those Nicolaitans at least uh, because the black darkness is being reserved for them. Chapter 2 here Verse 17, where he says, These are springs without water and mist, driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Then in chapter 3, verse 12, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. This is into that famous section about the new heavens and earth and the old heavens and earth being destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up, it says. And notice here in verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, notice Peter is saying to these saints there in Turkey that you need to be righteous folk. In verse 11, he says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? not dreading it and putting it off, but looking for it and hastening it and welcoming it because your deeds are righteous. And notice he says that they were looking for it intensely and hastening it. They're wanting it to come, waiting anxiously for it. Why bother looking for it and hastening it if they were not going to see it and recognize it when it came or experience it in any cognitive way? This language of Peter presupposes that they would see this event for which they were looking and hastening. Why does Peter tell them to look for it and hasten it if they were not going to see it and not going to experience it in any cognitive way? What would be the point 
of using that kind of language, and what would be the point of looking for it if they were not going to experience it, not even going to know it happened, and not get any benefits out of it? What's the purpose of Peter telling them, and what would be the purpose of them even looking for it and hastening it? Did they get those things? Did they see those things that they were looking for? Did they experience it in any cognitive way? Why don't they talk about it later? Why do they let Papias, Polycarp, and Ignatius go on their merry way saying that it's still future? If they were still around and heard Papias say that, why didn't they speak up and set the record straight? There's a problem here, folks. Do you catch the power of that? Notice it in chapter 3, verse 13 now, Second Peter 3, verse 13. He says, But according to his promise, we, in the first century, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter again says that we, in the first century, are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, certainly heaven is such a place where true righteousness dwells. There's nothing to forbid that application here, especially in view of the preceding verses and the following verses, uh, which talk about that new heavens and earth in which they would see and experience those things. Notice he says, we are looking for those things, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, did they get it? Did they know they got it? Did they experience anything when they received it? Why don't they talk about it later when Papias, Polycarp, and Ignatius start saying it's still future? There's a problem there. Notice the next verse here, verse 14, 2 Peter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things. Now, who is the you there? That's the first century saints. It's not us today. This is a time statement. It's a time indicator pointing right back at the first century generation. Therefore, beloved, since you in the first century look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Notice the words, to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. This is referring to their spiritual condition at the time of the parousia. What condition would Christ find them in when he returned? Would they be found in peace, spotless, and blameless? Would they know that they were found in that condition? Would they see Christ return and find them in that condition? Or would the parousia come and go without them ever being aware of it? There's a problem here, folks. Do you catch the power of that? We have ignored all these expectation statements to our fault. And I would challenge every one of you listening to this to go back and read back through the New Testament. The whole New Testament. Read back through it looking for the answer to these two questions. Number one, what did Jesus and the apostles tell the first century saints that they could expect to see and hear and experience at the parousia? And question number two, what do those saints tell us that they were expecting to see and hear and experience at the parousia? So question number one was, what did Jesus and the apostles say they could expect to see and hear and experience. And number two, 
what did they themselves, the first century saints, say that they were expecting to see and hear and experience at the parousia? And I think if you read back through the New Testament answering those two questions, you'll never read the New Testament the same way again. It'll open your eyes. Those first century saints were not expecting the parousia to come and go without them being aware of it. They were expecting to see it and hear it and experience some things and benefit from it. They were not expecting to be left around afterwards wondering what happened, not even aware that it had happened, and letting Papias and Polycarp and Ignatius say that it's still future without a protest. And so the fact that they don't speak up and set the record straight tells us that they must not have been around, because if they were still around, it would be criminal for them to keep their mouth shut about what the great things that they had just experienced, and let Papias and Polycarp and Ignatius go on their merry way as if nothing happened, and that it was all still future. It'd be criminal for them to keep their mouth shut about what they had seen and heard and experienced especially if they experienced the things that the New Testament says they were promised to see and hear and experience. Well, I hope you catch the power of that. There's a lot of other material here in in our outline, and it's in the PDF. If you get that, uh, you'll have all the rest of this information about the date and authorship, etc. If any of you have any questions or comments about any of this, uh, feel free to email me. I'd love to hear from you. My email address is preterist1, and that's the number one. It's not spelled out, preterist1 at preterist.org. That'll pretty well wrap it up for this time. Thank you so much for listening.